You're listening to The Deadly Dose, hosted by Harini Bott and Megan Gesner. Hello, hello. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Last time I complimented Harini's nails. This time, well, the, oh, there's the nails. There's the, the nails. nails. I haven't seen them Oh, yet. yeah, these are the nails. You did show yeah. me a photo, though. Yeah, gorgeous. <laughs> Jade green. Gorgeous. Ready for St. Patrick's Day yeah. and springtime. Yes. Complimenting the nails again. This time, I want to compliment Harini's outfit. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. super cute. What is this blue little? It's like... I don't even know. It's like a crop. It's like a crop top. So I went to the mall here in Malaysia, yeah. where I'm at, and I wanted to like scope out some local brands and clothing. And I have yeah. never done this before, but I literally bought a clothing like a outfit off the rack. Like I saw how it was oh. styled on like the mannequin, yeah. and I was like, I like that. I've never worn something like that before, but I was like, I'm gonna do it. It's originally with a dress, like a yellow dress underneath, but I, okay. I got two. Yeah. I got a blue. Like I'll show you. Like it's blue, but I decided to just like put it on top of like, Love. like a nice so cute top right here. And I was like, it's yeah. it's cute. It's like it's blue. It's a blue crop top, pastel for for spring. But I, I I'm like gonna it. try I, to use words to describe it in detail. So Harini is wearing a high collar white blouse. Yeah. Chiffon? No, not, not chiffon. chiffon. Linen? I don't know what that is. Yeah, like Ugh. like a dress shirt almost. I don't know textile, yeah. so how am I going <laughs> to Yeah, like it's like a dress shirt. Yeah. Um with a kind of frill design button down, a very mild frill design button down, but overlaid on top of this white collar long sleeve shirt is this tank top um, two inch wide strap tank top with a straight cut across the chest. Yes, uh, that crops at the midsection, but it's a flowing crop top. Yes, baby blue. So she's got this white with the baby blue accent, and it's just so chic. Thank you. You're that was beautiful. I don't think I used any big adjectives, but <laughs> you I didn't say like or um. <laughs> yeah, this would go really well with like a pearl or like the choker or like like yes. right underneath right here or something yes. like that mm. oh happy international women's day yes. very nice it's march yes women's history, women's month. history month some like to say history month as long as women are being celebrated i i totally <laughs> freaking agree because we need it lord knows mm-hmm. <laughs> um that being said my story is not about women <laughs> So scrap that. Scrap we got to get that out of the way. Okay. Let's talk about something else. Uh, <laughs> I guess I could pull something out. I just realized I was like, oh man. I mean, <clears throat> it's actually about the, the main protagonist is a man, but you know what? I just want to put it out there that we have done a lot of stories on women. <laughs> we have. If you guys want to listen to some strong female energy characters, Megan, chime in if you can think of more, but the, the Little Might mm-hmm. episode is a great one. Dr. Francis Olin Kelsey, love, 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 love that story. And I just found out some new information. So for people who are not aware, she was working at the mm-hmm. FDA and essentially single, and I don't say that lightly, she single-handedly stopped thalidomide from being FDA approved in the US when everyone else was like, mm-hmm. just do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she 
I, I got more information because I did another story on her later. She uh, rejected that drug manufacturer's proposal or um, their application for this drug four different times. So it wasn't even just the once. Okay. Four different times she came back was like, nope. And she, she had only been working at the FDA in that role for one month when this came across her desk. Only a month. I didn't even, I did not know that. I thought she had been there for some time. What? But yeah, so – I know that we've already done this story, but I have to ask yeah. again, like, why was it so clear to her, but not clear to everybody else? That That you is know? a fantastic question. And I think a lot of it comes down to her areas of expertise. She had a, she technically had a PharmD as well as an MD. I don't, I think she was one of the few mm-hmm. people who had that combination of the two s- skill sets. And that allowed her to really understand the data to a different level than other people were. Yeah. And honestly, there was not – I don't know because the the application that this drug manufacturer put forward had no data on it. It was all anecdotes. Yeah. Literally, it was anecdotes of people mm. being like, this drug is phenomenal. This drug is great. All those very generic words. So good. Neat. Neato. <laughs> right? They are just like, this drug is neato because it was the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> She will. She will occurs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So she was like, you need to produce more than just like, hey, this drug is 10 out of 10 would recommend. Right. So. Right. That's part of it. And because she was a woman. Yeah. Just got to put that out there. She was a woman. She's like, nope, mm-hmm. I'm not giving this to my babies. <laughs> and that's how it goes. So I guess this was not a woman's story, but I'm glad we got to talk about Dr. Kelsey because she is quite the powerhouse of a woman. So thank you, Dr. Oh, yeah. Kelsey, for saving America. Yeah. All right. <laughs> On to something else. <laughs> okay. Let's get into it. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> it's December 2nd, 1943, and it's in the middle of, you guessed it, World War II. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, um, Chicago. <laughs> I'm going to say a place, a location. Okay. All right. Off to to a fantastic start. Okay. This story takes place in World War II, and it follows the Germans basically bomb this port, and chaos just ensues. There are people who are dying. All these men are dying. People are having these strange rashes and burns that no one has ever seen before. And this doctor is specially flown in to – handle and assess the situation. And he, no one is telling him anything. It's very hush hush. And he starts to be like, what is going on here? So he essentially does his own detective work and he finds out something that he was not supposed to know. So that's the story. The Brits had taken over Puglia's capital and were using an old port called Bari as a hub for supplying the 500,000 allied troops in Italy. This port had also recently become the headquarters for the U.S. 15th Air Force. Four days prior, an American ship called the John Harvey anchored at this port carrying everything from men to food to airplane fuel. These massive cranes were lifting the cargo up and out of the ship all day when at 7.35 p.m. there was a crackling flash like lightning and a deafening bang. Bombs. There's bombs going everywhere. German junkers, Jew 88s, dropped bombs one after the other, just shy of the port. Immediately, there's smoke, there's flames engulfing Bari as more explosions turn night into day. But by the time anyone could get their bearings to fire back, the Germans have already disappeared into the night. 
This is the story of how a chemical weapons cover-up and one American doctor's discovery led to the very first cancer drug, now known as chemotherapy. There were 17 ships carrying 31,000 tons of cargo, all destroyed. A thousand men died that night and much more were seriously injured in the aftermath. Gallons of fuel exploded into the water, which subsequently ignited into one massive incendiary flame. These flames ran up the sides of these ships with the crews still on board, who were then either forced to jump overboard or were just blasted off and then did their best to swim through this oily sludge that now was all within the harbor waters. This attack became known as Little Pearl Harbor. The next few days would not make its way into the history books because wartime secrecy demanded silence. It would be 30 years before the first hints of any truth were finally revealed of what actually happened that night in Bari. Yet even with the truth uncovered, very few still know the unexpected impact this tragedy had on all of our lives. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Francis Alexander was asleep in his bed at Allied Force Headquarters in Algiers when he was jolted awake by the shrill ringing of his telephone. The other end of the line alerted him to an emerging medical crisis at the port in Bari. Men were dying fast, but from an unknown cause, and their symptoms were all the same, but unlike anything they've seen before. It was this unfamiliarity that led military doctors to believe the Germans used a new poison gas. Alexander was specifically called because besides being a medical officer under Eisenhower, he was also a chemical warfare expert. So he immediately was sent to Bari to assist. So now it's December 7th. It's five days after the Bari attack. And this is when Alexander lands in the port town and he's immediately escorted to the hospital upon arrival. Nurses who are working and treating patients the night of December 2nd recalled that, quote, with every fresh explosion, the building creaked and rattled, rocking like a ship in a storm. E.M. Somers Cox, a nurse from New Zealand, said the doors were wrenched off hinges, windows were shattered, and the bricked up windows scattered their bricks like hail. The, the blast killed the power, leaving the entire hospital in complete darkness. And that's when the wounded began to arrive. So you can just imagine, they're like, we are not pre prepared for this. Mm -hmm. The men are coming through the door. We're all suffering from bloody burns from swimming through the pools of flaming oil exposure and shock. Pretty much all of them were covered in black oil. In the flurry of the disaster, the men were believed to be suffering from shock and immersion. They were subsequently given a shot of morphine wrapped in warm blankets and then given sweet hot tea to revive their blood sugar, mm. all the while sitting in their oil-soaked uniforms for as long as 12 to 24 hours. Unfortunately, this was going to be the perfect cocktail that allowed the men to marinate, I know Megan's favorite word, in a deadly unknown substance. <laughs> I think marinate, it is my favorite word. It's a good one. I, I associate um, it with Megan. Wait, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so whatever mystery chemical was on them, mm -hmm. they kept that on while they're being wrapped. Is there a rhyme or reason why they didn't take that stuff off? They have no idea that there was chemicals involved. Nobody knows. They, they oh, think it's I just see. oil. They were just like, just get. They were just like, just get in the cloth. Correct. Because I, to me, morphine, hot honey, <laughs> and tea in a warm blanket. That's all sounds. I, I, it sounds. I'm like, how did it go cozy. so so wrong? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, you don't want to take your wet clothes off and get in there? Like <laughs> get in the jacuzzi. But who yeah. knows what the who knows what the temperature was like at the time. But it is 
I don't know where Puglia. Puglia. I don't know where it is on the map. I should look. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure either. Yeah, and in terms of why they did all that, again, nobody knows what's going on at this point. They just think that they're suffering from shock and immersion, maybe right. some like actual burns because of the blast, but they, they have chemical chemicals are just not on their radar whatsoever. Mm. Okay. So I guess I go on to say that, but at this point, no one had a clue and there seemed to be more pressing matters at hand at play. At the hospital, a nurse, Gladys Reese, recalled needing to put an IV line by just the light of a match while wind blew through a broken window. All in complete dark. Oh what? God. Just how do you do that? I tried to imagine. I was like, the wind is blowing. Like, that's like, you can't do that with one hand. I don't know how you do that. At least they're on morphine, so they're not <laughs> feeling multiple needle sticks. I know. Like, that is a true wilderness <laughs> like, medicine. Holding the match right by the vein. The vein. And then just like, yeah. I don't know. I can't. Oh, God. Uh, they're, they're different. Yeah. They're built different than – like that's the kind of training yeah. you just cannot get. The nurse's first clue that something was amiss was when the patient's pulses were sky high with low blood pressure, yet they showed no signs of being in shock or anxiety, which are typical of those symptoms. Instead, the men were almost apathetic, and some reported feeling – feeling that they even felt well with warm extremities instead of the expected cold. Mm. So everything was kind of flip-flopped in terms of how they were presenting. Overnight, the men developed inflamed red patches and blisters all over their body filled with pus the size of balloons. This is going to get tiny bit huh? graphic. A few patients complained of thirst even after having a full cup of water. Soon, the entire ward were desperately begging for water and ripping off their clothes because they felt hot. Most of the men were now presenting with red, irritated skin with ballooned-up fluid-filled blisters. Then, six hours later, patients began complaining of eye pain. Their eyes felt heavy and gritty, like they had sand in their eyes. And within days, these men's eyes were swollen shut. If you're getting blisters on all parts of your skin, what's stopping you from getting blisters on your eyes? Totally. Like, that's, your eyes are exposed, if anything else. This led doctors and nurses to believe this could be a poisoning. However, none of the men were responding to standard treatments for, for such poisons. Mm. It was horrible. These young men were in terrible pain, but nothing that the nurses and doctors did worked. And they couldn't give the men pain medicine just in case the medication interacted badly with the poison because they're just working in the unknown here. Then the first death happened just 18 hours after the attack. Two days later, 14 more men died. But it was mystifying. Mm. Men who were completely fine one moment would develop symptoms within minutes and then die. With the death toll rising, Alexander had to work quickly to find a solution. So he was walking up and down the wards. He's examining each patient and asking them detailed questions to try and form a clearer picture of what could be the possible cause. He was asking them, what ship were you on? How long before you received first aid? How did you get back to the dock? Did you swim or were you taken to shore? Almost all of them didn't receive first aid, first aid until 12 to 24 hours after the incident, like I said. One soldier recalled how he remembered being on the ship when an ear-splitting explosion blew up a nearby ship, which sent a spray of oil up his neck and down his back and chest. Upon further inspection, Alexander noticed a distinct raw outline on the soldier's body from where that same oil spray made contact with his body. And he could realize this was no regular burn. This was a chemical burn. Many also had burns from the flames, but all had these bizarre chemical burns. There were a few lucky ones who experienced only minor injuries because in the moment, they wiped away the oil splash on them. Alexander thought back to his training. The three most common toxic blistering agents were sulfur mustard, lewisite, and nitrogen mustard. 
All three are called gases, but are oily at room temperature. Everyone knew mustard gas and were taught the distinctive smell that came with it, like burning garlic and or horseradish. This mystery oil physically presented like mustard gas, but didn't smell like it. Nitrogen mustard was a new chemical gas developed by the Germans. Last year, as part of war intelligence, the Allies managed to smuggle two samples of the substance out of Germany, which Alexander studied for its characteristics. This new substance could penetrate intact skin to cause systemic poisoning. It was essentially odorless, colorless, besides a slight fishy smell, which would go virtually unnoticed in a seaport like Bari. Mm -hmm. And the Germans were known to mix nitrogen mustard with other toxic chemicals like blistering agents, so the possibilities were honestly endless. Since Alexander was a go-to chemical warfare consultant, he had the unique status of being clear to the highest degree. I honestly feel like this was a big part of why he was able to figure all of this out. With that in mind, he knew that if he didn't act quickly on this knowledge, more men might die. And by the knowledge, I mean that this is likely a type of mustard gas. So he went directly to the commanding officer of the 98th General Hospital, Colonel Laird, and told him he believes the men were exposed to a type of mustard gas. Do you know how this could have happened? He asked him. Laird matter-of-factly said, none. The only reason Alexander asked this was because he knew the Allies were stockpiling poison gas in case the Germans unleashed full-scale chemical warfare. So they just wanted to be ready. At the same time, it was highly unlikely that Allied forces would ship toxic mustard gas shells to Bari only to let them sit like sitting ducks on the off chance Mm -hmm. that there was an enemy attack. Yet somehow, Alexander felt Laird was withholding something from him. So he went to the British Admiralty's headquarters and asked the same question, this time more bluntly. Was there mustard gas in Bari Harbor? The answer was absolutely no. But even then, Alexander remained skeptical. He, He knew. It was mustard gas. He just didn't know where it was coming from. Mm -hmm. So now he just needed proof. Yet at the same time, it wasn't exactly mustard gas. It was a version unknown to the Allied forces up until now, which is one of the most unsettling parts of the entire situation. Mm -hmm. So Alexander got to work getting samples and doing tests on those who were both alive and on, on autopsies to confirm his suspicions. He also took a field trip out to the bomb site in Bari Harbor to see if he could find any more clues. This port had been closed for five days and had just partially reopened to the public that day. The floating oil was a foot thick on the surface of the water. So Alexander wondered what toxins lay within that within what the Germans dropped onto these unknowing ships that evening on December 2nd. Hmm. Yet Alexander found no evidence of mustard contamination in the port. He spoke with several British officers at the docks who stared at him in shock and disbelief at the mention of mustard gas, saying, that's impossible. There's there's no mustard gas here. He's like, I, I didn't include this. He's like, why are all these people just being like, no? Like, they're like, immediately, no. <laughs> He's like, that's, that's very sketchy, but okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, how can you be so sure? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Alexander explained to them, but essentially he doesn't take no for an answer. He's like, no, uh, there must be mustard gas coming from somewhere. And he explains to them the symptoms the men were experiencing back at the hospital were all in line with classic chemical poisoning. Of the 534 men admitted, 231 suffered from symptoms consistent with mustard gas exposure. Like, come on. The British officers listened and concluded that if, big if, if mustard gas if it was mustard gas, it could only have come from German planes. 
If that was the case, that meant Hitler just opened the door to chemical warfare, and that was quite a big accusation. Megan is having shifty eyes right now. <laughs> like, mm-mm-mm, something's saving, amiss. I'm saving for the reveal. Yes, yes, yes. Holding okay, fine. my tongue. Cool. All right, here we go. Alexander needed to be absolutely sure before running that up the chain of command. Armed with his patients' interviews and medical charts, Alexander mapped out the 17 destroyed ships in relation to the gas victims and successfully traced the epicenter of the chemical explosion. Alexander was stunned at what he found, but wanted to make triple sure that he didn't make a mistake. Uh So he instructed a diver to search the harbor floor for any evidence of mustard gas shells. And the diver I feel bad for the diver. Oh, God, did the diver come back blistered? (laughs) I'm sure he was covered head to toe. Hopefully. It's it's like I'm imagining one of those old school diving masks where it's just like brass and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the diver retrieved fractured shell remains. They tested the residue and the results came back positive for traces of mustard. Hmm. This shell fragment belonged to a 100-pound M47A2 mustard gas bomb. German gas bombs were always marked with the Gelb Cruise or Yellow Cross. There were no signs of the Yellow Cross on this mustard shell. It was not a German bomb. It was American. The call was coming from inside the house, (laughs) people. That's right. (laughs) What a good reference. That's what I wanted to say this whole time. (laughs) Alexander's first gut instinct turned out to be true. His map to the source was correct. The Allied American ship that I mentioned at the beginning, the John Harvey, that was at port that very day, carrying supplies from crackers to fuel, was also carrying a massive cargo of mustard gas bombs. Mm. It was a secret shipment that was stopping by in Bari to drop off other supplies before continuing on its way for a chemical stockpile in prep against a possible German chemical attack at another Italian name that I did not look up. So let me quickly look up. (laughs) God damn it. Uh, Okay. Thank God I looked that up because it's, it's spelled F O G G I A like Foggia, but it's Foggia. Foggia. I like that. that. That's a pretty name. It's pretty to us. I wonder if it's considered pretty, pretty (laughs) to them. Yeah. I I think it sounds gorgeous. Foggia. Foggia. Yeah. It was a secret shipment that was stopping by in Bari to drop off other supplies before continuing on its way for a chemical stockpile and prep against a possible German chemical attack at Foggia, 70, 75 miles away. Alexander knew what the shell contained from his training. It, it was American, so he knew. It held either white phosphorus or liquid sulfur mustard, and they easily were blown to pieces during the chance German attack, unleashing its deadly contents all over the harbor. There is no way that the British officers didn't know about the shipment from the John Harvey. This was entirely a cover-up. By knowing the origins of the toxic spill and choosing not to alert hospital staff caused so many deaths and so many more injuries. Although employed by the army, Alexander was a doctor first and foremost, and his responsibility was to his patients. At least now he knew how to treat the rest of the men at the hospital. Meanwhile, the Allies continued to fuel the narrative that the cause of this poison gas was from the Luftwaffe. This declaration had massive implications. And just to give you a little bit of backstory, earlier that year, President FDR warned the Axis against any use of chemical weapons. If Mm -hmm. such action were taken, it would be met with the fullest possible retaliation. Mm -hmm. 
the grave impact of misinterpreting intentionally or not the source of the mustard gas in Bari would be unthinkable. It could easily trigger mass chemical warfare. And this is all going through Alexander's mind. He's like, what do I do? Yeah. It was now nine days after the bombing, and British medical staff at other hospitals were waiting for Alexander's word of approval to go ahead and treat their patients like it was mustard gas. So Alexander swiftly sent high-priority cables directly to President FDR and Prime Minister Churchill, alerting them to the true source of the deaths and injuries as coming from the John Harvey ship. FDR responded, please keep me fully informed. Simple to the point. Churchill also was simple to the point. He curtly replied he did not believe there was mustard gas in Bari. (laughs) I mean... I know how critical it was to keep information so close to the chest to a point where there were certain parts of the highest levels of government that didn't know what messages were being passed in case it would be intercepted. But I can understand this feigning, this ignorance, Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. it would protect against any wind of word getting caught by the Axis powers. Like, I can understand why he would deny that or being like, I don't know about any chemical gas on our end. Right. Neither confirm nor <laughs> deny. And right. I, I agree with you. There should not be a paper trail. Although I feel like he could have just gone the FDR, FDR route and been like, keep me informed. Like, it's not he's not he's not accepting the responsibility. Like, none of that. <laughs> Maybe church. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Good point. It, it was very diplomatically sound of FDR to say that. Please sure, keep me fully sure, informed. Sure. <laughs> All right. Anyways. That's it. XOXO. You, XO, FDR. You may, <laughs> XOXO. Gossip girl. Um, Alexander was left stunned and at a loss of what to do next. So he sent another telegram. This man is persistent. He sent another telegram to the freaking leaders of the free world. And he sent it to Churchill explaining in detail his findings and evidence that this was beyond any doubt mustard gas exposure because perhaps like give benefit of the doubt maybe he doesn't understand what i said (laughs) so churchill replied quote the symptoms do not sound like mustard gas the doctor should re-examine his patients i think churchill knows i think churchill totally (laughs) understands yes there was gas going through that port but i'm not gonna have this doctor who i know is doing good work mess anything up for us because we have to win this war yeah I mean, Churchill Churchill is way, way back in his underground offices and bunkers in London, England, and he's yeah, just sending this just telegram. Just hotboxing it with a cigar. Right. Totally <laughs> hotboxing with a cigar, writing this telegram, or however, do you even write telegrams? I don't know. And that he's like saying this telegram, and just to give himself some peace of mind, he's saying, there's no evidence of any mustard right. gas bombs. As I shake my head up and down. In agreement. <laughs> there needs to be like an SNL skit of this exchange. And yeah. every time uh, Alex- Alexander passes something back, Churchill doubles down in the more <laughs> ridiculous more. way. Like then the next time he's like, I promise you there is no mustard gas in this bay. I will personally come down and drink a cup of the bay water myself. In front of you. <laughs> Truly. If only SNL existed back then. <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay. Yeah. So Alexander appealed to the liaison officer for help in the matter, and his and his advice from the liaison officer was one did not argue with the prime minister. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's just like a warning. It's like a hint, hint, buddy. Like, sorry. The big picture is that this sucks. That's all. 
completely. This it's this entire situation is so shitty across all boards. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think another aspect of it is he's a stranger and a strange man in a in a, mm-hmm. in, a in a way because he's an American in what it seems to be like mostly British territory in terms of like who, the Allied forces who are in charge of that area. So he doesn't have a lot of allies, yeah. ironically. In Churchill's telegram, he posed the following question as evidence against that it was mustard gas and barry. So this is Churchill's evidence that he puts forward. Why were the toxic effects so much more serious than any other recorded in military history as there was mustard gas in World War I? Far more patients were dying of mustard symptoms at Bari than on the battlefields of World War I, when the fatality rate had been around 2%. The death rate in Bari was more than six times higher in climbing. Hmm. Alexander had the answers, but he knew it would fall on deaf ears. So he's like, hmm. uh, I got to go a different route. <laughs> this is not going to work. Yeah. The reason was an unprecedented amount of mustard gas. Okay, sorry. I got to go back. Sure, I sure. – I, I wrote the mustard gas as MG, and that threw me off because I was like, Megan. <laughs> Megan? What like, Why did I write Megan's story? initials? <laughs> On to- oh, a present amount of <laughs> Megan Gesner toxic gas. <laughs> you know, uh, I always used to have a fear that kids would call me Megan Gasner back in the day, but oh. they never did. I had a, a fear for no reason, but I just – I. <laughs> thought that would be a good opportunity for people to bully me, but no one ever took that opportunity. Dude, I would never in a million years ever think of that combination until you just said it right now. Wow. I am so uncreative. (laughs) The reason was an unprecedented amount of mustard gas was absorbed into the body this time as compared to World War I from prolonged exposure from being immersed in the oily liquid in the harbor Mm -hmm. and then left sitting in these oil-soaked clothes for hours on end until first aid arrived. And when they did arrive, they wrapped these men up, soaked in toxic oil in warm blankets, and then gave them warm tea, all of which accelerated Mm. the absorption process. It was the result of a perfect storm of events that all lined up to form this deadly cocktail. Mm. But this is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of information. As Alexander went through the patient charts and cases, he kept noticing one recurring lab result. The men's white blood cell counts were drastically low. Some of the patient's white blood cell counts went all the way to zero or near zero. Alexander was stunned. It's something he had previously not seen before except for one place. He had not seen it in humans. He'd seen it in animals. Hmm. Last year, he studied the effects of nitrogen mustard on blood levels in rabbits. The results were rapid destruction of white blood cells leading to leukopenia or low white blood cell count. He repeated the experiment in another batch of rabbits and then other animals, all with the same results. This got Alexander thinking. Nitrogen mustard might have a use in combating leukemia, a common pediatric cancer that causes uncontrolled white blood cell growth. He felt that if they could experiment with varying doses that killed some but not all white blood cells, that it might treat, if not cure, leukemia patients. But when Alexander proposed this, it was shot down as not being within the scope of their military project. Hmm. Now, two years later, Alexander had rock-solid evidence that mustard gas did selectively destroy white blood cells in humans, too. This random freak accident, because remember, they did not know the Germans were going to bomb. They just It just happened that way. 
this random freak accident and sequence of events aligned in this perfect combination to allow everyone to confirm in real time that the effects of nitrogen mustard gas exposure was the same in humans as it was in animals in a lab. And Alexander could not chalk it up simply to coincidence. He was one of the few doctors in the world with specialized training in mustard gas who already was aware of his potential medicinal benefits, who was then hand-selected in this disaster to lead medical care for a hospital full of case studies, case studies that would be impossible to do on live humans. No one would say yes to that, right? Alexander knew that he would not be able to save all these men's lives, but he wanted to make sure their lives still counted towards something. So he ordered more blood and bone marrow tests to be drawn from the morgue, and he collected as much data as possible before all of this got shut down. And on December 27th, he submitted his initial report of his 10-day investigation of the Bari Harbor disaster. His report was immediately classified. Now President FDR and Churchill worked together to keep the source secret so Hitler would have no opportunity to retaliate and be kept in the dark that the Allies did, in fact, have a chemical weapons stockpile on hand. Any mention of mustard gas surrounding Bari Harbor was scrubbed from the records. Medical staff were instructed to alter patients' charts and symptoms. Alexander's reports were changed from toxic exposure to deaths due to enemy action. And in a way, it worked because the Germans never launched a chemical attack. However, it later came to light that the Germans were aware of the source of the poison gas at Bari all along. So, they so had, it didn't <laughs> – everything didn't was for not. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> They're like, this, we already knew. <laughs> I, maybe what, that's why they bo- bombed it. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. I mean – well, okay. I'll get to it. So Who knows? I don't know. Okay. Go ahead. I don't know the history. <laughs> They had Nazi spies working at the port who suspected the Allies were stockpiling mustard bombs in Italy. So after the Bari attack, the Germans sent their own diver, an Italian man local to the fascists, who Mm -hmm. also retrieved part of the M47 bomb fragment that confirmed the mustard bombs were American. So they knew the whole time. That's yeah. kind of crazy that that was happening simultaneously. What if the divers bumped into each other down there and they did like the Spider-Man meme? Yeah, they're, they're like, like oh, oh, oh. <laughs> what are you here for? <laughs> right. <laughs> Ironically, British officials never acknowledged Alexander's medical report of Bari, but the Americans gave it high praise, applauding him for his exemplary wartime medical leadership. Eisenhower's senior medical advisors stated that Alexander's meticulous investigation was so complete and of such immense value to medicine that it represented almost a, quote, landmark in the history of mustard poisoning. Another doctor named Rhodes saw the same medical potential in nitrogen mustard as Alexander did, so he took the Bari report and a top-secret Yale University trial that showed for the very first time that IV nitrogen mustard in small doses could cause tumor regression in humans, and he developed an experimental treatment. First of all, I did not realize that Yale or that universities do secret trials like that, but I mean, it makes sense, I suppose. Especially during war times. Like, I think that they were used for that purpose. Yeah. So Rhodes used this IV nitrogen mustard in small doses to cause tumor regressions and developed an experimental treatment. That treatment is now known as chemotherapy. After the success of his experiments, Rhodes went to Alfred P. Sloan, the chairman of General Motors, and his esteemed engineer, Charles F. Kettering, to fund a new cancer institute that would bring together the best minds in in the fight against cancer. And thus, the first Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center was created. 
1949, mustergen or mechlorethamine was FDA approved as the first experimental chemotherapy for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is NHL is what I worked on at Abbey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The American Cancer Society credited the Bari disaster as the very beginning of the age of cancer chemotherapy. Wow. Yet the truth of the Bari attack remained a secret for decades to come. Although Alexander never received full credit for his discovery and contributions to medicine and oncology due to the secret nature of the incident, his efforts don't go unnoticed now. Three years before Alexander's death, so it took a while, three years before Alexander's death to melanoma, a skin cancer, the U.S. Army belatedly commended him stating, quote, without his early diagnosis and rapid initiation of appropriate and aggressive treatment, many more lives would have been lost and the severity of injuries would have been much greater. His service to the military and civilians injured during this catastrophe reflects the finest measure of a soldier and a physician. Very fine words. Ultimately, the Luftwaffe's lucky strike at Bari, which unleashed a toxic cloud of mustard gas over the harbor and liquid into the water, brought about an allied cover-up of a chemical weapon stockpile gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. In the same breath, it also led to one doctor's kismet discovery of chemotherapy, a treatment we could no longer imagine being without today. Yeah. And that's and that's the story. Wow, that's an incredible. That's an incredible that's story. It blows my mind how many different critical events were happening simultaneously mm-hmm. throughout World War II. Like there are so many war movies about World War II because so many different crazy espionage events or like yeah. secret 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 plots in one area or mm-hmm. this area or whatever were all happening in coordination with each other yeah. from one side or the other and like this is this could also be again like another war film about totally this moment about the discovery of chemotherapy you know what i mean and i think that's what just i think i can i preface i prefaced it with i'm not a world war ii history (laughs) fanatic but now that i've had my toe dipped in there Mm -hmm. i understand why people are so wowed by it because yeah it's just a wealth of Mm -hmm. incredible things that happened during that time yeah this is one of them totally like incredible on the entire spectrum of the world like horrifying Mm -hmm. to just amazing in terms of the innovations I, I think when I read this story, I was blown away. I was actually at the hairdressers. I was getting my hair mm. blow dried. And I always – this that's like the time I take to just read through stories for like material. And I came across this story and I could not stop reading. And it was long. It's a long, 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 long. It's great. Love that. That is the story. So very cool. Very, very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Love a little history lesson. Yeah. Um, now antidotes. My antidote for today's episode is – is I've recently been taking online courses through my work. It's just for global procurement. Sure. It's dry, dry as hell, but I've reached a tipping point where it actually is really interesting to me. Oh, good. And my antidote is that it feels good to be learning something for the purpose of going towards a goal, learning something Mm -hmm. that I have no knowledge in whatsoever. It feels like I am really using my brain as I should or how I used to use my brain. Yeah, um, totally. And that feels good. I, I love, love that. that I'm learning something new. Yeah. That's, I mean, you can't underestimate the power of knowledge and learning. Yeah. Learning something new is probably the best thing you can do for yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mine is so teensy tiny, but you know what? Whatever. Um, 
I was making breakfast this morning. And that's why I pushed the recording, Megan, and I was making some breakfast. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the housekeeping, they'll ring the doorbell. I'm in a hotel, guys. <laughs> Uh, they they will ring the doorbell or their knock, and usually I I will always open the door and be like no thank you whatever because I want to like have that in person interaction. But this time I was like literally watching the stove right, and this is the first time ever that I was like no housekeeping thank you. And then I just hear silence on the other end like I don't hear like feet shuffling away, and I was like uh. <laughs> and then I hear like a lady call out we have something for you, and so I was like oh okay. Uh-huh. So then I opened the door. I dropped it now. I opened the door and it was three ladies from the hotel. They're like, happy International Women's Day. And they had like oh. this little like gift for me. It had like a ribbon that had like a a, a note on it that said like, happy International yeah. Women's Day from like, – we thank you for staying with us from the hotel. And I was like, that's yeah, so sweet. Yeah. And then they were like, can we take a picture <laughs> with you? So then that's we took a picture so together. Sweet. It was so yeah. sweet. And like Very I cute. told them – so freaking sweet and i they wanted to take a picture of the hallway but it's so dark so i was like would Mm. you like to come inside like there's better lighting and they like all took off their shoes and like came inside i was like yes (laughs) my heart have you my heart have you learned their names yet no i i i'm getting there like i think we know the people that are at the not the, what do you call it like the entrance the concierge yeah like sort of like the concierge like yeah. the people that are actually at the lobby they change out so mm-hmm. quickly like i we haven't really okay. gotten to talk to them but the bartender people and the people that are mm-hmm. outside we always like yeah. say hi and talk to them they're very nice very very nice yeah that is so very sweet. sweet what was in the box i need to know it's a candle What's in the box oh, it's a candle that is cute oh How cute does it smell like does it smell like amber and sandalwood yes it does. Uh, yeah. It does. <laughs> That's a, With good a little bit of rose. That. That's my favorite smell. Oh, love. It smells they really do like good. the rose smell. That's nice. It's really good. Love very, that. very kind. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. I. That's. It made me feel really special. I was like, yes, I love being a woman. I hate to put pressure on you. You know that means you have to give them something in return, right? Oh, I should. I should. I should. I really should. It doesn't have to be like that's literally one small candle from three people. You could just give them like home-baked cookies to split between them oh my god i could yeah yeah i I should give them something i should give them some kind of food or something like that yeah maybe i'll maybe i'll go out for like a little walk and grab something yeah that's very sweet love that okay happy international woman's day to you harini you too yeah happy woman in crime to all the lovely ladies listening out there all the latest all the latest And then freaking, of course, <laughs> Megan's Megan's boy cat walks across the screen. I'm kidding. He's like, me too, me too, me too, me too. Uh, oh, yeah. cutie pie. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Oh, uh, don't oh, risk yeah. it for that sweet morphine hot tea blanket biscuit. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.